Well, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, how are you this morning? Uh, that's the question that uh, gets politely asked, right? As, uh, as we come together uh, each, lead, uh, each Lord's Day, we, we come together and regain our physical unity. And, and we ask each other, if we're not too distracted by our own problems, we ask, uh, how are you this morning? Or, good morning, how are you? And, uh, and what are the possible answers? Uh, the most common is probably good, and how are you? Um, but as we consider possible answers, one possibility is that someone says, I'm good. Uh, stock market looks good. I talked to my investment guy this week, and uh, my portfolio is uh, looking encouraging. Uh, I've got Florida in my sights for my retirement, and uh, all is good. But another person says, uh, I'm good, I suppose. Um, the Dow Jones took a dive this week. Uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to pay all my bills this month. Uh, but in lieu of explaining all this to you, uh, aside from expressing what I'm really feeling, I'll just say I'm good. And, uh, and how about you? But there is another possible response uh, it would be number four, as I'm ordering things in this introduction. Uh, the first response is the ubiquitous good and how are you. Uh, the second response is based on having a really good week behind us so that we can say, I'm good and here's the evidence. Uh, the third response is to say, well, I'm doing okay, but I do have my concerns. The fourth response is to say, I'm good. Not that everything is perfect in my immediate outlook. I'm, I'm living pretty much hand to mouth, as they say. Uh, I'm getting by, but I'm good. I, I, I really am because the Lord has risen. I'm trusting him, and he has said that even after I die, yet I will still live and will even live forever. Now, that might sound too good, right? And uh, such a person responding that way might even be somewhat annoying to us. After all, no one can be that positive, can they? And, and doesn't such a person make the rest of us look bad when we grumble too much, when we uh, give the cold shoulder too much, when we uh, aren't nearly so joyful, but as I said, it really is a possible response, and, and it's possible exactly because there's a reason for it. Uh, the person who answers, how are you, with I'm good, can do so honestly when there's a good reason. And here's the problem. When, when people just want to talk about positivity or the power of, of positive thinking, on one hand, that works if you can manage to set your mind and, and your memory on what's good in your life and ignore what's bad. But otherwise, we, we need a reason for what we feel. We cannot just invent reality in our minds and expect our hearts to follow along. I think it's always helpful to remember that your heart is smarter than your mind. Uh, you can think one thing, and, and you, can, you can tell it to yourself over and over, but your heart isn't so gullible. 
And it will find you out if you're only pretending. We begin in this way because we are learning from the story of Joseph about the providence of God. And last time we we paused a bit to take a a wider view of God's providence. Uh, Too often I think we, we consider God's providence in terms of very specific events, individual things that happened. And, uh, and when they happen, uh, either we get to understand or we don't. And, and whether we do or we don't understand why certain things happen, we have the teaching of God's Word and the promise of God Himself of His providence. Perhaps the best story to teach God's providence is the story of Joseph. And perhaps the best single verse uh, to teach God's providence is Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good according to the purpose of God for those who trust Him and love Him. But that's true not just in the day, not just in the moment. Instead, it's important for us to see the whole flow of God's providence throughout all of history. I think we will do better at drawing comfort from God's providence in the day of suffering when we have first learned to think about, because because it really is is the matter of a worldview, when we have learned to think about God's providence in terms of history, in terms of the flow of God's providence from the beginning to the end. But now back to the story of Joseph. And the approach this morning is to ask, what should my response be to God's providence? To ask it another way, how are you this morning? Can we learn to answer the question? And and even without anyone actually asking us, can we learn to say by faith, I am good. I am good because of the providence of God. If we make such a confession of our faith and and enjoy what we might call the peace of God's providence, it, it must involve this first important lesson, that God's providence extends over the earthly rulers of the world. The first point is God's providence and earthly rulers Because within the story of Joseph, there is a a significant emphasis on this point. In the first part of Genesis 45, we hear of Joseph making himself known to his brothers. In verse 4, we read, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery or into Egypt. By the end of that initial revelation, we might call it, everyone is hugging and and they're kissing and they're loving each other. But then in verse 16, there, there's an important part to the story. It says, when the, when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. So that Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, began issuing instructions concerning the family of Joseph. Now, in order to understand from this detail uh, what we really need to understand 
we need to, to see that Joseph had already decided to do for his family what Pharaoh then comes along and orders to be done. In verses 9 and 10, Joseph said to his brothers, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. Uh, there I will provide for you, and, and uh, for there are seven years of famine uh, yet to come. It was a great plan, uh, and, and we can already see, can we not, the providence of God unfolding. Uh, they sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Joseph indeed sank into slavery. He suffered much. And then he rose to power, at least to a position of great influence. His, uh, his God-given wisdom uh, was brought to bear upon the lives of many people, including Joseph's own family now and his miserable brothers. There's only one problem. Joseph was not the king of Egypt. He was not sovereign in his providence over his family. And so the story by, by the text makes it clear that indeed this was God's providence because we see that the very plan laid out by Joseph was then taken up by Pharaoh. And the text doesn't seem to say that Pharaoh just acquiesced. Uh, he didn't say, oh, all right, if Joseph wants it, I'll grant it. Instead, Pharaoh was just as sure of the plan as Joseph himself. And it requires us to, to ask then, who really is sovereign in the history of the world? This is a huge question, not, not just theologically, but even pastorally. In, in other words, get your doctrine straight in your head, but get it straight in your head for the sake of your heart. Because again, you can, you can think whatever you want to think, but your heart is not going to follow along. Your heart is smarter than your head. And so we, we need to know the teaching of God's word, that he is sovereign, that, he, that his providence extends to the direction of even the greatest uh, uh, rulers of, of this world. Someone might, might say, well, how can that be? I mean, uh, uh, given that so many rulers have, have ruled with such arrogance and with such cruelty and, and injustice. And we see it or, or we hear of it in our own day when we have presidents who are dead set on preserving the, the right to abortion. There, there's a power struggle in our day, is there not? Is the Supreme Court sovereign or is the president sovereign? Even the struggle itself seems to indicate that neither, neither is sovereign as they must vie with each other. But it's stories like the story of Joseph that teach us that God is sovereign over all, that God is sovereign and that his providence extends over the rulers of this world, whether when they do good or when they do evil. Now, we might want to, to say, well, if, if God is sovereign, why then are rulers of this world allowed to do evil? And here's where we need the book of Genesis again as a, as a record of actual history in order to understand the world we live in. 
We need to understand that in the first place, God sovereignly entrusted the earth to mankind. Secondly, that man, being sovereign over the earth, abdicated his authority and yielded his rule to the evil one. Thus, our Lord himself referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Who made him ruler? In a sense, man made Satan ruler of this world. But does any of this mean that God does not remain sovereign over it all? If you rent a a piece of property belonging to another, and then you turn over that property to a a third party, certain things uh, do not legally change. To start with, the property still belongs to the owner. You rented it, you turned it over to the third party, but the owner still owns it. Another thing that doesn't change is that you are still responsible for it because the owner rented it to you, not to the third party. You, you can't say, well, well, don't blame me for what's, what's happening uh, on your property. Uh, I didn't do it. The other person did it. No, you, you remain responsible. And, and so it applies to everything in this world, starting with our own bodies and our lives in this world and the things that we own. These things belong to God. We are but stewards, as we say. He has, in, he has entrusted these things to us. And even if we turn them over, our bodies, our lives, our possessions, if we turn them over to Satan, we're still responsible for them. And yet here is the grace of God, that this is what sin is in this world, yet God has not seen fit to throw everyone immediately into jail, whether us or the evil one. God, as the owner, could have simply and quickly dispensed with the whole mess. In fact, that's what he did do to a a significant degree in in the flood. In the flood of Noah, God asserted his rights, and he destroyed the, the whole mess. But he did so to put on display, to set up for our understanding the grace that would follow. God is sovereign, which means that through it all, he remains owner and ruler of all things. And so it is that this this piece of the story is is far bigger than we can really even understand on our own. It it belongs to the new birth for us to to see that when when Joseph made his plans to be uh, a blessing to the very brothers who had sold him into slavery, Pharaoh agreed. What if he had said no? What if he had said, uh, Joseph, you might be willing to forgive your miserable brothers, but I don't want men like that living in, in, my, in my country. What if he had uh, just said, uh, no, I'm just not feeling generous today. Not going to happen. Pharaoh was sovereign over Egypt. His word was law. But he concurred, he agreed And the plan stood firm. The arrangements were made by the command of Pharaoh himself. And the blessings that God intended to flow to his people came to them. Despite sin, despite 
the evil, regardless of the great injustice done to, to Joseph, yet the result was great blessing. And it came about by a demonstration of God's providence, even through the ruler of a great and powerful earthly nation. Well, we could go on, right? I mean, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, time would fail us to tell of uh, how many other rulers whose arrogant, uh, rebellious decisions and actions were yet ordered by God to serve his purpose. Uh, Think of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, who conquered Israel, but who was turned back from the gates of Jerusalem, where in one night 180,000 of his men died by the, by the hand of God. Think of Babylon, which, uh, which God brought against Judah, uh, with God claiming, Babylon is my servant. I, I have raised them up for this purpose, to judge my people for their sin. Uh, think of Julius Caesar, or uh, think of Caesar Augustus, uh, who uh, ordered the census that sent Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Why? So that Mary's son, Jesus, could be appropriately born in the city of David. Think of Herod and Pilate, both of whom strutted their stuff in this world, even with their actions recorded in, in, in Scripture, and yet all was according to the plan. God's plan. God's providence. As Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was condemned by them and sentenced to death on a Roman cross. Brothers and sisters, the point is to think, think, think. Oh, that we would learn to think. The, the point is to, is to receive the testimony of God's word that God is sovereign over earthly rulers, that, that his plan of salvation cannot be thwarted by, by any puny man, despite whatever power and authority he holds or thinks he holds in this world. The point is to think in order to believe and, and to think in order that your heart may have the evidence that will allow you to be at peace. When the money runs thin, when the election doesn't go as we hoped it would, uh, when the car breaks down, when expenses soar, when the diagnosis is grim, when the kids are stubborn and foolish, when the boss is a jerk, when whatever, God is sovereign. And his providence yet flows to us. When our hearts can follow what our heads hold in knowledge, then we can find peace. But peace should come along with our obedience, God's providence and our obedience. In fact, we can even say that obedience will come only as we have the peace of God's providence. There's a logic here. Uh, And again, it belongs to the new birth. On our own, as as we navigate our way through this world, what are the reasons, what what are the motivations that, that we come up with for obedience? Obedience by itself is, is kind of a dirty word, isn't it? We don't like it. We don't have to do it. 
but because we must, we, we try to get motivated. Maybe, maybe the judgment of God should be our, our motivation. Well, that's true. Judgment is coming, but will we avoid to, or will we obey to avoid judgment? The thing is lost from the beginning, if we think about it. Be as good as you can be from here on out, but what will you do with yesterday? What will you do with uh, the life you've lived uh, to that uh, point uh, filled with failure and, and sin and, and the knowledge that God's judgment is due to you? That's not going to work. Well, maybe just self-improvement, uh, the pursuit of virtue. But again, how, how much success will we find in that? And, and, uh, and what about, the again, the record of sin in the past? Wonder of wonders. The only true motivation for obedience is peace. The peace afforded by God's providence. The peace given by the, go- the gospel. We find this in the story of Joseph as Joseph gets bossy with his brothers. Uh, to this point, we have already heard Joseph being bossy. Um, but we don't think of it as bossy when what's being ordered is blessing. Go, tell my father, that's a command, right? Go, tell my father that I'm still alive. Pack up your things. Uh, bring everyone down here. Joseph was being bossy. <laughs> But we don't hear it that way, and why? But well, because Joseph was commanding blessing upon his brothers. And we do the same thing with God. Is he bossing us, or is he blessing us? It's not until we are convinced that he is blessing us that we will respond in obedience. We need the peace of the gospel. We need to know that God is for us and not against us. We need to know that we are forgiven, that we are even righteous before Him, before we will truly obey. Obedience is, is not just rule-keeping. It's, it's the joyful delight to do what God commands us to do. Yes, He does command us to obey. We can't deny that. But, but He is gracious to assure us first of His love for us in Christ so that we will have peace, so that we can be assured of our salvation, so that we can obey out of our delight in His love for us. But we hear the, we hear the bossiness of Joseph in these words in, in verse 24, then, then he sent his brothers away. Again, how bossy can you be? He sent them away. He ordered their departure, and he, and he said this, Do not quarrel on the way. What a, what a strange thing to say. Uh, amid the joy of his reunion with his brothers, amid the anticipation of uh, seeing his father again, amid the arrangement and provision for the blessing of his entire family, yet Joseph thinks to add this rather bossy command, Do not quarrel on the way. Joseph knew his brothers, and, and, and he would have none of their previous behavior repeated in order to lessen, or, or that would lessen the blessing that he intended to bring to his family. In other words, he was saying, don't ruin this for me. 
don't delay the blessing that I intend to bring to my father and to you, my brothers. Don't perpetuate the behavior that you've exhibited in the past. And can we not hear the gospel in this? And even the, the obedience that can flow from God's providence. Every morning we can get up and we can know. We can know by the knowledge and the promise of the gospel. We can know that we are saved. That we are loved. That we are forgiven. That heaven is ours. And we can know it because of Christ. It's all done. Jesus said, it is finished. All is accomplished. Not as we work, but as we rest. As we don't work, but trust that indeed it is finished. This is what Joseph was saying to his brothers. Yes, he was being bossy. Don't be so stupid in in light of all that you now know. Don't be so foolish to quibble, to, to, to quarrel on the way. And that's where we are. We're on the way. Yes, there's a a journey to be traveled. There are challenges along the way. And we might say uh, in our doubt, well, then if I'm only on the way, then I'm not saved yet because uh, I'm not back to Canaan and I haven't packed up my stuff and I haven't gotten myself back to Egypt. But don't forget the authority of Joseph. He was guaranteeing it. And Pharaoh concurred, not because God needed him to agree, but to demonstrate that God was doing his thing. And his thing could not be stopped. It it could not be limited. It could not be delayed by any earthly ruler. And so it truly was done. And it is done for us. We are on the way. But what did our Lord himself say when Thomas, uh, Thomas, uh, bless his doubting heart, when Thomas said, Lord, how, how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so it comes down to God's providence and our comprehension If anyone doesn't understand this, I I would only ask, but don't you wish you could? This is the stuff of hope in a hopeless world. This is the stuff even of life in the face of death. Here is purpose and, and order rather than futility and chaos. Here is the thing that, uh, that has some sense of, of existence, and yet we can't quite figure out where it comes from. We know there's something called hope. We know there's, there ought to be purpose. We know there's an order to this world. There has to be a reason to get up in the morning. But how do we comprehend these things? We see our own weakness as, uh, as all these things were told to Jacob upon the return of his sons. And, and think of it, he was, he was earlier so terribly afraid that, that sending his son Benjamin with his brothers into Egypt would mean that he would never see his son Benjamin again. 
Now he heard not only that Benjamin was back safely, but that Joseph was still alive. And the story tells us his, his heart was numb. He did not believe them. How do you comprehend such good news? Good news upon good news. Benjamin's back and Joseph is still alive. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote in Ephesians 1 that God has lavished us with his grace. Good news upon good news. And he's done so in all wisdom and insight. He has done so making known to us the mystery of his will. It's better than you could have ever expected. And we keep running across words that we can pretty much equate with providence. Uh, In the beginning, God created the world in providence. In every work that God did recorded throughout the scriptures, God displayed his providence in Christ. And by his saving work, God provides us with his providence, the gospel. And now we, we hear in Ephesians 1 of the lavish, the lavish blessing of God, which is his providence, his providence for us in Christ. But can we understand it? Will we comprehend it? Jacob struggled like anyone else would. You know, would, would the lonely widow of 30 years uh, be able to comprehend that her husband is still alive? Uh, could the mother who uh, has heard that her son is dead, killed in battle, could, could she years later bear to see him walking up to her front door? And can we comprehend that though we die, yet shall we live, and that we shall live forever. The best we can do, perhaps, is to hear it uh, maybe in some religious sense. Uh, uh, we give it focus on Sundays when we're in church, saying yes and amen to the incomprehensible. But surely we are not truly comprehending the gospel until we are claiming it each and every day by faith. Jacob said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And that's what we must say to the gospel. Christ is alive. He was dead and he has risen. I will go and see him before I die in order that I might live. The way of the world is to say peace, peace, when there is no peace. The way of the world is the power of positive thinking, whatever that means. But our hearts need truth. Our hearts need promise. Our hearts need the knowledge of Christ in order to find peace. Whatever happens, it's not just, okay, I can endure this too. No, whatever happens, Christ. Whatever happens, hope. Whatever happens, it's not just, well, I'll find a way. But instead, Jesus is the way. I already know. I already know him. And he knows me. And he is. He is the providence of God to me. 
for my eternal life. Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, help us not to hear these things as if they just belong to church and uh, to things we might expect to hear in this place, but instead may we hear them truly. May we know them for real, that Christ is our Savior, and that in each and every day of our lives we can find peace in Him, resting in what you have done in your providence through him and for us. Grant us, O God, to avoid bare religion and instead to take up a personal faith in Jesus Christ that will yield to us the peace that we need, that we know we need, and that can be ours. Indeed, as we trust in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.